my name is Mike Diedrich. I'm here with Michael McPherson. We're with v- Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 in the Veterans for Peace radio program uh, broadcast on KODX 96.9. Today, we're. Uh, uh, I will read the uh, mission statement and then get into our program. Uh, statement of purpose, we having dutifully served our nation do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others towards increasing public awareness of the cost of war, to restrain our government from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other nations, to end the arms race and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, and to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, members of Veterans for Peace pledge to use nonviolent means and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding all members are trusted to act in the best interest of the group for the larger purpose of world peace. We urge all people who share this vision to join us. And it's appropriate for this uh, uh, radio program today that to one of the, um, our third point to end the arms race and reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons. We're going to have a discussion about nuclear weapons, but also I wanna mention the uh, national project of Veterans for Peace, which, Peace, which is the Golden Rule Project. And the Golden Rule was a ship that was eventually, uh, that was sent to the South Pacific in 1958 to protest nuclear weapons and the uh, nuclear testing. It was intercepted in that, that uh, effort and subsequently uh, was uh, abandoned and left on a beach in, in California where a Veterans for Peace chapter literally rose it out of the mud, mud and rebuilt the thing. And since in the last 45 years, actually uh, um, the golden rule has sailed to the South Pacific, to Hawaii, uh, up and down the West Coast, including Seattle uh, in the Northwest where it made a several years ago a major tour. Uh, most recently they went and actually protested the rim pack, rim of the Pacific um, war games that in, uh, in Hawaii. So it's an ongoing project of Veterans for Peace and will continue to be a, uh, a center point of our, our protest to get nuclear weapons and be a part of this uh, uh, nuclear weapons uh, test ban, or not test ban, but nuclear weapons uh, abol- uh, United Nations Treaty uh, later this year. So, um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's the Veterans for Peace uh, uh, centerpiece, and also um, we've got some other points to before we get into our interview with Leonard Iger. Yeah, the Golden Rule is awesome, awesome site to see. Um, um, but I, first, let me say hello to everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. The radio show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month from six to seven p.m. on KODX ninety six point nine FM Seattle. Um, you can find that at kodxseattle.org. Um, you can do the streaming there or you can hear it on the radio. And if you want to find our past episodes, again, go to the same web- website, kodxseattle.org slash seattlevfp. Um, you know, we should have uh, members or some crew or something on the show maybe next in January. Um Golden Rule crew. Maybe we should have some of them on the show. Yeah, Helen, I know. She was actually a member of the chapter along with Carrie Condon a few right. years back, and uh, I'm sure that we could get her on the show. Yeah, maybe we can get both of them. That would be pretty yeah. cool. 
So um, November has been a pretty busy month, really, and it's not over yet. Um, one thing I thought that we needed to mention is the election um, that we've had, and uh, it was national election for president, of course, and um, local and everything. And right now, um, it looks like, um, I shouldn't say look like, um, yeah. <laughs> Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden is uh, president-elect, and unfortunately, uh, we can we have the person in the White House now trying to overturn that. Um, that's not going to happen. I don't think there's a whole lot to say about it because it's so absurd. But uh, Mike, would you like to? Well, you you want to say? hopefully we can we can be witness to the spectacle of Donald Trump being marched out of the White House by federal officers, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Secret Service. Um, it's interesting the election too. Is I mean, it's not not my uh, according to most analysis is that the Biden won. He's uh, got six million votes more than Trump right. did, mm -hmm. and a big part of that is the turnout of the minority vote, in particular black and, and Chicano vote, and uh, that happened because of the Democratic Party finally saw the handwriting on the walls, and uh, because of Trump's bigotry. But the election was secured in more than one uh, state because of that turnout of uh, particularly black and Latino vote. Yes, Latinx vote. That's right. And uh, the progressive vote in general as well, I think, um, right. also helped carry. So, you know, maybe we can talk about that sometime in the future, um, what all that means. Another thing that's happened um, in November 11th was Armistice Day. And uh, most people here in the United States know it as Veterans Day. And one of the things we're going to have uh, in a few minutes is we spoke to uh, three of our members here. Uh, why is Veterans Day? Why is Armistice Day important to them? Um, I just want to say that um, I have mixed feelings about Veterans Day. Um, it's a day where, unfortunately, in this country is more about militarism and war than it is about really looking at what's happening to veterans. Um, you know, people are thanking me for my service and I appreciate that. But the best way to thank me for my service is to end wars. So we don't have any more veterans um, that need help. Um, and another thing is to make sure the veterans who come back um, get help. Um, you know, veterans are disproportionately, uh, disproportionately homeless, for example. So um, Armistice Day is important to me because uh, that's a day that we need to really think about what war is and ending war. And just real quick for people who might not know what Armistice Day is, Armistice Day is commemorated every year on, on 11 November to mark the Armistice sign between the allies of World War I and Germany um, in France for the sensation of hostilities on the Western Front of World War I, um, which took effect at 11 in the morning, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. Um, Armistice Day was celebrated around the world and still is actually, but some countries decided to change its name to other things. Um, some places called Remembrance Day. And here in the United States, uh, we think of it as Veterans Day and no one even thinks about what it was originally. So Veterans for Peace has this campaign called Reclaim Armistice Day. Um, and we're doing that because obviously as, as Veterans for Peace, we're trying to end war, trying to abolish war. We really want people to think about on Armistice Day, think about what war is and, and the fact that we need to end it. Do you have any thoughts? You want yeah, to uh, 
uh, as you mentioned, a Reclaim Armistice Day is a national program of Veterans for Peace. And uh, part of that program to celebrate uh, the uh, actual peaceful celebration of, of the end of the war and, and working for peace, Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 is for the last five years uh, pay, uh, partnered with St. James Cathedral here in Seattle and where we the cathedral bells at, at 11 o'clock ring 11 times commemoration. We have a short ceremony. We've been doing that five years here. Uh, and uh, some of the other churches in, uh, in other parts of the country too. I mean, Milwaukee, I think particular um, uh, Madison, it's got a strong chapter there of VFP has done it. So reclaim Armistice Day and reclaim the original intent of, of the, of the uh, Armistice Day, which was a celebration of peace too, not just militarism. That's right. And um, so people know this on 11 November 2018, which was the centenary of the end of World War One, or um, excuse me, the centenary of, uh, of Armistice Day. There was an Armistice Day commemoration held in France. It was held globally. But in France, more than 60 heads of government and heads of state gathered at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Um, so I just want people to know that because many countries around the world still think about Armistice Day and still celebrate it um, because it's supposed to be, you know, World War I is supposed to be the war to end our wars. Unfortunately, that's not the case. But the reason for that is because of us. And when I say us, I don't mean the United States. I mean, all of us as a as the global community, we can end war uh, if we work to do that and start to believe in peace. So I just ask people to envision what peace looks like and work to bring about peace. Uh, if we don't do that, then we will continue to have war because war is not going to stop by itself. We have to do it. Uh, so the next thing I wanted to mention briefly is that Thanksgiving is coming up. Um, and so I wanted to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Um, but I also wanted to ask, well, there's a couple of things. One is the CDC has asked people not to gather. So I'm asking people to think about that and not gather if, if, if you can. Um, get on Zoom. Um, it's kind of a sacrifice, I know. But it's one well, well worth doing um, because it'll help keep people safe. It'll help protect your family. And then we can all get together next Thanksgiving. Can you imagine what uh, next year is going to be like once we get this thing under control, this, this virus? Um, we're going to have huge, wonderful celebrations, um, but you would hate to gather this year and someone in your family die. Uh, so please um, be careful and um, just don't gather. But the other thing I wanted to remind people about Thanksgiving is a lot of what we learned when we were young about Thanksgiving, about the uh, pilgrims and the Native Americans uh, coming together and everything being cool uh, isn't, isn't true. Um, and while Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, I try to remember the truth about Thanksgiving. Um, the holiday that I celebrate is about family and thankfulness to my friends and family. And as a Christian, thankfulness to God or the goddess for giving me health and strength. Um, but I also need to remember the truth about Thanksgiving. So there's a book that you might want to ch check out by David Silverman. It's called This Land is Their Land, the Wampanoag. Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. And just real quick, because we want to get to our show. Um, 
just from uh, now this, I love this, Mike, the Smithsonian Magazine has an article about this guy's book and they did an interview with him. And um, I just want to read one of the questions and his answer. How did you become interested in this story? And his answer is, I've had a great many conversations with Wamba Panog, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, please excuse me, people in which they talk about how burdensome Thanksgiving is for them, particularly for their kids. Wamba Panog adults have memories of being a kid during Thanksgiving season, sitting in school, feeling invisible and having to wade through the nonsense that teachers were shoveling their way. They felt like their people's history as they understood it was being misrepresented. They felt that only their they felt that not only their classes but society in general was making light of historical trauma which weighs around their neck like a millstone. Those stories really resonated with me. So this is important because even today, the native people, the descendants of the people who supposedly had fun with the pilgrims are feeling like the story is so distorted um, that it makes them invisible. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, that is, that's th those very important to remember those facts when you think of Thanksgiving. It should be noted that actually the Indians actually served, uh, were responsible for that colony surviving as long as it did by giving them food. That, that, that much is true. But then the, the colonists uh, turned on him as they did the rest of the country and we sort of began this 300-year uh, uh, conquest of the Americas and the killing off of the native tribes and people. And uh, this was sort of uh, the years of the beginning and where that started and it ended up with a uh, uh, population that was estimated that tens of millions ended up with three million people left in North America who are native. Uh, disease, war, uh, starvation, dispossession, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, was, that was the beginning and it was a disastrous for the native, native peoples in this country. That's right. And I've talked to a Native American, I talked to a Native American friend of mine, John Martin. Actually, I followed him on Twitter and um, I got in contact with him and I did an interview with him that I, um, last year that I plan to put in my podcast about us for this year about Thanksgiving. One of the things he told me is that sometimes people try to tell him that he's not really Native American because no Native Americans exist anymore, which I found to be just totally crazy because yeah. who thinks that native people, indigenous people no longer exist? I mean, that's just nuts, but that's, that's an example of how native people have been made to feel invisible and, 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 and made in some people's mind inconsequential. So when you, when you're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner, please remember this and uh, talk about it and actually we all need to start to do more to uplift native people. Yeah, they, 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 they are still very much in existence. And a good example of that is in uh, the Oklahoma uh, uh, court case where the state Supreme Court of Oklahoma, right. the, the, the uh, various uh, tribal groups there who were brought in from actually from some other places too, are entitled to about a one third of the state legally entitled to it because it was theirs to start with. Yeah, right. So they're not going away. They're here. And uh, Sorry, you better get used to it. That's There's right. going to be, have to be some reparations, not only to the natives, but also the uh, American, African Americans. But uh, 
that's those issues are not going away in this country. They are they're the two biggest issues really in this country: the twin holocausts of the Native American and African dispossession uh, uh, and murder. And yes, yeah, right. Yes, we have a lot of history we need to deal with, but people, we can do it. We just need to be honest and move forward together. Um, and accept what responsibilities any one people have. Me as a man, I have some responsibilities I need to do, deal with, but I'm African-American and I ask uh, white people to deal with their responsibilities as well. So lastly, before we move on to the, to the interviews and everything, I wanna thank the postal workers of the United <laughs> States. I wanna thank them because um, a big part of our election that took place uh, is because of the hard work of postal workers and the security um, of our postal system in terms of our letters just in general. Cause I send, I, believe it or not, I still send checks to pay for things and they, and they get there, right? That's money. Um, so, um, so obviously if money is secure traveling through, I think um, uh, most ballots are secure. Uh, so I really appreciate you postal workers for the work that you're doing. And um, um, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Yeah, that, that's that's true. I mean, I, I spent a couple of years as a mail handler for the United States Postal Service and actually Dan Gilman, another chapter member did. So we both know how hard that work is. It's hard work. Uh, if you stick with it, it actually ends up with a good pension, but it, it's hard work. Uh, the Postal Service is now a sort of supposedly for profit and the management are are class A shits as far as it's treating it, but they work hard, those carriers and, and clerks, you know, you're right. It's actually, they're, uh, it's represented as actually indicatively the respect that almost all Americans have for the postal service That's and right. the service they do to this country. Right. All right, you all, well, thank you for listening. And now we're gonna go ahead and move on to our interviews. And the war is over into Market Street for the men and women of the city to celebrate. For this day, November 11th, 1918, marks the end of an era of hate and bloodshed and violence. It's the beginning of peace and goodwill on earth. And those who have died have not died in vain. They've died to make the world safe for democracy. They've swept to victory in the war to end war. And so San Francisco celebrates in 1918 because the war is over and there'll never be another. Alan Telusti. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I served in Vietnam 1966 to 1969. Uh, when I first got to Vietnam, I uh, got hooked up with the uh, 196th Light Infantry Brigade out of North Carolina. Uh, traveled with the Tunnel Rats, uh, eventually was sexually assaulted and got pulled from the unit because things happened. Uh, the importance of uh, Veterans Aid to me is uh, I was also there during the 68 Tet Offensive. Uh, I think we lost, the most we lost in one day was four of our comrades 
into about a two-week period. There was about nine, ten of us that uh, lost our lives, and, and so I've carried the guilt over the time. At, at first, my original feeling was that it was better than that they were killed or injured than me. I'm glad I came out of it okay. But then, after a while, I realized that you know why why was it them and not me that got wounded or killed or you know why am I here now and then eventually that evolved into with my Christian upbringing is that with predetermination it's like God put us on this earth for a reason am I doing what He put me on earth to do and and that haunts me every day. Sure. Uh, that's why I've joined the uh, different veterans group over time, Vietnam Vets Against War, and then Veterans for Peace, because I, I, it's very important, and I think that's what my duty here is on Earth, is to try to bring peace. And because of all my veteran friends, whether they're have passed or are still around, it, it's a very important day for me to be humble and, and recognize what it's all about. Yeah. Um, why is it important for us to think about today also is Veterans Day, but Veterans for Peace tries to help people remember that it's Armistice Day. What do you think? Why is that important? I, I think around the world, uh, whether it's Great Britain or Germany, it, it, we all, those of us that have been exposed to those experiences, uh, it's something we have to live with and we carry with us. And it, it's it's okay for there to be one day a year. It happens to be November 11th. You know, the, the war to end. It's supposed to end all wars. But I, I think it's important for us just to take time and, and a few moments, and, and with the bell ringing, especially to uh, humbleize ourselves and really remember what has happened. And and I think for me, I I don't wish war on anyone. You know, I, I just I want peace. Uh, Dan Gilman I was in the uh, army from 1967 uh, to 69 with a tour of duty in Vietnam in 1969. So this day is important to me um, because there's not many days out of the year where we celebrate or remember um, what war does and what costs our nations and our uh, our people and uh, it's just I think it's too bad that in the 50s um, the president I guess it was Congress changed the uh, day from uh, Armistice Day holiday to Veterans Day holiday and now it's it's really a rah-rah for the military and the veneration of uh, veterans and uh, it's for really forgotten about what it was all about in the first place and that was remembering the slaughter that was World War One and the prospect and vision of a peaceful world and, uh, and an end to war. And uh, that just seems to be lost. And so uh, uh, 
changing back to the original intent of the of the day is really really important and uh, personally just um, enjoy this day a lot more as Armistice Day than I ever did as Veterans Day and uh, you know for a person that made the transformation from a soldier to a peacemaker it, um, um, it it's been quite a journey but Armistice Day now is one of the highlights of my my year and, uh, and spreading the message about the original intent. My name is Kelly Wadsworth and I served in the Army from 2001 until 2011. Armistice Day is important to me because I value the peace as the best gift to veterans. So Veterans Day, it does seek to honor those who have served, which I do think is important, but I think the best honoring, the highest calling that we can have is to keep the peace to the best of our ability. And so Armistice Day, I think, is an important way to frame the day for veterans. And uh, how do you think, with Veterans for Peace doing this uh, Reclaim Armistice Day effort, how do you think are we making a difference or how how does it make a difference? I think it's important to keep the big picture in mind and that's what Veterans for Peace is doing with the Reclaim Armistice Day. That the big picture of war and peace, um, that Veterans Day is embedded within the bigger topic of armistice and of peace. And the Armistice Day that it marks the World War I Armistice Day is an important one because those were such atrocious wars and we need to be mindful of the ways that we can and have devolved into multiple countries, world wars, and that we need to be vigilant about that. Mike Diedrich and I'm here with the VFP 92 Veterans for Peace 92 radio show on KODX 96.9. With us today is Leonard Iger and co-host Michael McPherson. Leonard Iger is a uh, Ground Zero coordinator uh, with uh, and also uh, associate of the Washington Nuclear Coalition, Coalition Against Nuclear Weapons. So I'll let uh, Leonard introduce himself and we'll get started that way. Yeah, um, I've been working with Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action for almost a couple of decades, uh, you know, small volunteer group of people. Um, this all began back in the late 70s, uh, 1970s, with as a response to the Trident uh, nuclear weapon system that was being planned at that time to replace Polaris. And... Um, a very small group of people started this, and I won't go into the details now, but uh, here we are you know, nearly a half century later, and uh, we're still uh, practicing nonviolent civil resistance to the Trident system and uh, working to abolish all nuclear weapons, of course, and it's all based on the study and practice of nonviolence. Um, and it couldn't be a more opportune time to be doing this. I myself started out, uh, went over to participate in vigils 
and actions and uh, ended up taking a few photographs. And the next thing I knew, I was uh, an official photographer in an unofficial way because uh, we're very non-hierarchical in this group. And um, I've written and uh, coordinated communications and we all do a lot of different, uh, wear a lot of different hats in this group, but we just do what we have to do to get the job done. Okay, Leonard, uh, uh, you also are involved with the uh, Washington Coalition Against Nuclear Weapons too. Uh, and uh, I noticed, I went to their website and I noticed that uh, they are celebrating the 50th uh, country ratification against the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And they also have very specific six uh, things that you can do, which is actually a very good thing for people who want to get involved with this. And um, you can comment on that, but also can you talk about, since it's ground zero, it's particularly important, uh, this issue of Trident and the new uh, nuclear subs here, which is a very much of a local, but also an international issue. Can you give us a little background on what that is, the Trident submarine and nuclear weapons? Yeah, I'll start with that. I'll start with Trident um, and then segue into the coalition. You can remind me if I forget. Um, yeah, the Trident nuclear weapons system, as I said, was designed um, you know, going back into the, the 70s and wasn't deployed uh, until uh, the 1980s. And um, it was intended, uh, it was it was back in the Cold War days, the, the height of the Cold War, and it was intended as a survivable, a, you know, survivable counterforce to the Soviet, then Soviet Union. The idea being that the submarines patrolling the seas um, were stealthy. They couldn't be seen or heard. Um, of course, you know, both the Soviets and U.S. kept finding ways to detect each other's submarines. It's, you know, the game of cat and mouse. Um, and But anyway, it, it is uh, very survival because the submarines can lay in wait anywhere uh, on the seven seas. Um, and each Trident submarine is at... It currently now there are 20 uh, missile tubes loaded, but it was intended initially designed with 24 missile tubes to carry 24 missiles, and each could carry upwards of eight nuclear thermonuclear warheads. Um, and so today, um, of the original Trident submarines, it's called the Ohio class officially, but the, we call them Tridents because of the missile that they carry. Um, each of them now carries 20 missiles, and each of those is estimated to carry approximately four warhead, thermonuclear warheads. And this is all based on the new STAR Treaty, which we've heard a lot about lately, um, a treaty that has done its job and helped keep uh, the two superpowers uh, from going out of control uh, <laughs> with uh, nuclear modernization, which now is on its way to being out of control. But getting back to Trident, um, the submarines are always on patrol and on the orders to launch, uh, the submarines will come up to near the surface, um, pretty quickly um, shoot off their missiles at their targets and uh, the rest would be history. Uh, probably be unwritten because uh, one Trident submarine has enough nuclear firepower um, to cause the global famine scenario that has been written about a great deal. Uh, scientists have studied and shown that a limited nuclear war between India and Pakistan um, 
with their small nuclear weapons, just 100 warheads, would cause global famine of upwards of or more than 2 billion people, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. And one Trident submarine, just one Trident, has enough firepower to cause that. Um, I'll stay away from too many statistics right up front, but, but that's the basis of these submarines. We have two bases, one in Kings Bay, Georgia, one in um, uh, Silverdale, Washington. And out here in Washington, we have eight of the current 14 submarines, and the other six are based at Kings Bay. Um, and so any number of those can be on patrol at any one time. And back during the Obama administration, there was the famous uh, Asia-Pacific pivot. And at that time, uh, they actually moved um, one or two additional tr uh, tridents from Kings Bay to Bangor. And that is why we have more submarines now because of their uh, numerous patrols uh, and continuous patrols in the Pacific region because of China, the shift to China. Um, so now we have both Russia and China uh, as adversaries. Um, at any rate, um, it, currently um, the Trident system uh, has been modernized. I can go into more details later. And there are plans afoot to build 12 new uh, Trident uh, submarines. This is called the Columbia class, the next generation, uh, to replace the quote-unquote aging Tridents. And they are getting old. Um, and the first um, production model has been requested by the Navy, and it's been funded, and um, General Electric uh, or Electric Boat, General Dynamics Electric Boat will be building that submarine along with a number of other subcontractors working on it. Um, so that's just a brief rundown uh, about the mechanics of, of Trident, if you will. Uh, yeah, you know, you mentioned survivability. It seems like that is the essence of uh, the whole nuclear question and, and, and talking with people who support, support you know, uh, gradual de-escalation of uh, nuclear weapons and uh, START and those other treaties, what have you. But the issue is using them at all, which is a lunatic argument, in my opinion. I'm not the only one who says that, of course. But there is, it's, it's the out, use of any nuclear weapon of, of the class, particularly we're talking about the uh, Tridents and others, is, is lunacy and is probably one of the most immoral sort of things that humanity has ever been involved in. Uh, I, I like the actual the, the, uh, the, the statement of the uh, um, Treaty for Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons says that it prohibits nations from developing, testing, producing, manufacturing, transferring, processing, stockpiling, using or threatening to use nuclear weapons or allowing nuclear weapons to be stationed on their territory, as well as... <laughs> assisting, encouraging, or in, inducing anyone to engage in any of these actions. Basically, it makes it outlawing nuclear weapons in any form. Precisely. Well, you know, you really nailed it there. You know, we can talk all day and, and night about the mechanics of these nuclear weapons and, and words like deterrence, the idea that our having nuclear weapons deter an adversary from attacking us. Um, and we can really get into all these different arguments about nuclear weapons and um, these intellectual arguments. And the, the bottom line is that 
uh, aside from the fact that the deterrence has failed in the past, we can just name the um, Cuban Missile Crisis as an example. But as so long as these weapons exist, there is the probability that they will be used either accidentally or intentionally. And it only takes one <laughs> nuclear war to end it all uh, in civilization as we know it. Um, there, you know, they, there is no real response to even a limited, the smallest uh, nuclear war. And of course, besides India and Pakistan and the tensions there, uh, there's a new Cold War brewing between the U.S. and Russia. And um, again, accidents have happened in the past. They've been well documented, and it's a question of time. And so, so long as they exist, they will be used. The odds are stacked against us. And what's wonderful about the ban treaty that you bring up uh, that will enter into force on January 22nd, the language is, and thank you for reading that, uh, because it is very clear, it is complete, it is so thorough in what it covers, the requirements. Um, and, of course, you mentioned about, you know, the gradual... Um, uh, disarmament uh, in different terms. You know, for years, even with the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the U.S., uh, again, which should be leading the way along with Russia towards uh, abolishing nuclear weapons, being the two holders of the largest, you know, 93% or more of the world's nuclear weapon warheads, um, we've, we keep talking about, oh, it takes time. It takes time. How many decades has the United States and Russia um, talked about we, we need to do this in a stepwise fashion. We need to take our time. And here we are. Over all these years, we have been building you know, nuclear weapons, new delivery uh, systems. We have the B-1 bomber, the B-2 bomber, um, the, the Polaris system, the Trident system. And now we'll have the next generation of Trident. Um, and um, it goes on and on. So there really has no been no good faith effort, which is required in the non-proliferation treaty, that the nuclear powers will make good faith efforts towards disarmament. Article 6 states that clearly. And it's really been ignored because the nuclear weapons are a symbol of status, of power, and we use the threat of use of nuclear weapons to control other nations and to do our bidding. Um, it's patently obvious. Um, so the ban treaty, although the U.S. and Russia and the other nuclear powers are not signatories, they have not signed nor ratified, enough other nations have done so. It will therefore become binding international law on those nations that have signed. So now is our opportunity to bring pressure on the nuclear armed nations to say, look, <laughs> this is not in humanity's best interests to maintain, continue to maintain nuclear weapons uh, because of their omnicidal property. Uh, not to mention the fact that we do need to focus on other issues, critical issues facing humanity right now here and uh, around the world. So you're absolutely right on about that. And you look at that language and it is a wonderful treaty. It was, it was clearly thought out, planned. It was a collaborative effort among nations, uh, even with 
countries like the U.S. stonewalling and pushing against it right up to the very end and pushing countries to pull out after they'd even signed. Uh, so I applaud all the nations who not only work together to, um, to write this treaty, but all who have signed and ratified. It's the, the next step. You know, the, uh, there's the argument that, uh, you know, we, we can't do it because the other, other, other countries won't do it, as in sign this treaty or reduce our nuclear stockpiles. But there's a, there's a history of cooperation, at least between the United States and the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union. Well, you make a really good point in terms of cooperation. Um, for the U.S., Indeed, we have always wanted to stay one step ahead of the Soviet Union and, uh, and now Russia. Um, that's always been our intention to be on top, to be the superpower. And yet we did many things in a cooperative way. Um, we, and we did help, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall with um, uh, securing nuclear materials, dismantling nuclear weapons. And as a side note, it, what is interesting and really important to note about that time period Period, is that countries like Ukraine and Kazakhstan uh, gave up their nuclear arsenals. And at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, Kazakhstan at least would, would have been considered the fourth nuclear, uh, largest nuclear power in terms of the number of nuclear missiles and warheads that were based on their soil. Um, and they made a conscious decision to say, we do not want nuclear weapons here. They do not provide us any security. Um, and so they gave them up back to Russia, as did Ukraine, and uh, and and then again, uh, weapons were dismantled, uh, many of them. Um, and besides that type of cooperation, uh, even within the Cold War context and post-Cold War context, we had the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, which is one of a number of treaties that uh, President Trump has been pulling us out of. The Open Skies Treaty allowed both the U.S. and Russia to do overflights over each other's countries to examine and uh, um, ensure that the new START Treaty was being applied in each country. Um, and uh, you know, we were maintaining the limits on nuclear weapons that were agreed to under the new START Treaty, another treaty he's um, pulled us out of. And again, the New Star Tree kept a lid on the nuclear arms race, and it worked, as did the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, another one that even though Russia was doing things that were not in keeping with the treaty, there was no reason to pull out of the treaty. We should have been working with Russia, challenging Russia, both directly and within the context of the United Nations, and, and in enforcing the treaty. You don't pull out of treaties. Treaties are, are there for a reason. And all of these treaties were um, in, you know, put into place for very good reason. And ironically, not all of them under Democrat uh, administrations. Uh, you know, it was both Republican and Democrat. Um, and I guess maybe that gets to the, the central point is nuclear weapons are not a partisan issue. They have to do with the survival of humanity in terms of abolishing nuclear weapons. Uh, they have no, there is no security truly in nuclear weapons in any way, shape, or form. So it's really in the interests of, of everyone, Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter what political persuasion we are, uh, everyone suffers in a nuclear war. And I'll make one last point on this. Uh, I think you brought out is that it's really up to the U.S. and 
and and Russia as well to as, to lead the way towards disarmament. The U.S. being the only nation to use nuclear weapons in war, and Russia again because they are the two superpowers, uh, have the, the the lion's share of nuclear weapons and hold the world uh, under that threat of nuclear annihilation constantly. Um, yeah, Leonard, thank you so much for all this great information. Um, so there's yeah. two things I guess I want to um, really emphasize. Uh, one is the name of your organization is Ground Zero Center. And um, maybe everyone who's listening to this program understands what that is, what why that name is. Maybe they don't. And when you mention, so I want you to explain, because when you mention Kazakhstan, and how they realize that the nuclear weapons aren't making them safe and they decide to give them up. I think there's kind of like a parallel between that and the here in Seattle um, region. So, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I understand from the website that the Puget Sound is home to the largest concentration of deployed nuclear weapons in the US. Um, so I yeah. feel like that makes us a target, like a big, gigantic target for the strategic reason you spoke about as to why they even have the Trident, mis the Trident uh, submarines in the first place. And then the fact that, um, that this region right here is the largest deployed of nuclear weapons. And I guess I wanted you to, that, that sounded like Kazakhstan realizing, yes. that, you know, people might target us because we have nuclear weapons. And I, I guess I want the listeners to understand yeah. that this is Precisely. not making us any safer. It actually is making us a target. Precisely. Besides the, the global issue, locally here in the Seattle area, Puget Sound region, we are literally ground zero. We are one of the primary targets for Russia. Right. Um, uh, in, if, if there was ever a nuclear conflict, we can be sure that uh, it would go quickly here in this area because they would want to wipe that submarine base out to, because not all mi the missile subs are deployed uh, at any one time. So it is one of the principal targets and um, just even a single um, nuclear warhead blast over the Trident base. Um, and you can be sure that there would be multiple warheads uh, you know, exploding in the area uh, would decimate the region. Uh, and there aren't enough burn beds <laughs> anywhere no. uh, to, to treat the survivors. The hospitals in the area would be destroyed, every all infrastructure. Uh, there would be no way to respond. And so this is a local issue here, and it is a reason why we have to ask, I think that's your, your point, is you know, why do we have these weapons when they are not really weapons of war? They're weapons of mass omnicide, as David Krieger of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation has said. They, they are omnicidal. They're, they're, they, they indiscriminately kill everyone and everything in, its, in their path. And right. uh, they are not defensive or offensive weapons on any scale. Right. Um, so it is time for, I think, the U.S. to, to change its posture. And the problem there is not just a current administration, but it's a system that is in place. You know, of course, the military-industrial complex is, is at the heart of it. The fact that this is 
there's there's money in nuclear weapons. The, these right. large contractors, General Dynamics, uh, Raytheon, uh, Boeing, you name it, uh, right. Lockheed Martin, uh, they all make um, tremendous amounts of money. And so there's a system in place to keep this going. Well, um, Leonard, and that, I think and, more, go ahead. I, yeah, I want to yes. get back to, to Mike, but the other thing that I really wanted to emphasize, and you, both of you said this, but I want to say it really, really clear for people, um, is that the, the United Nations and most of the, the countries in the world have passed this treaty that you all were talking about that bans nuclear weapons. And I just want to I want to say that with a big smile on my face. I, I want to say that in a, a celebratory way that the world, for the most part, and that's what I want people to listeners to understand, that the world, for the most part, has said that nuclear weapons need to be banned. So that's not even a question anymore as to whether or not most people, or at least most leaders in the world, think nuclear weapons are bad. The answer to that is yes. So now the question is, which countries don't want to get rid of them? That's, that's the real issue here, and that we need to push those countries, in, and, and ours, our country, us, the United States of America, us as citizens, we're one of those leading voices in saying, no, we want to keep nuclear weapons. And I want people listening to understand that. And that is up to us, and you all said this, is up to us to make our country change. Ec yes, excellent point. And, and again, as citizens of a democracy, quote unquote, you know, voting is never enough. We have to apply ourselves and apply pressure on our officials, elected officials, to do what is right. And so this treaty is a watershed moment. And on January 22nd, there, there's going to be a lot happening in January. A lot of organizations are coming forward and planning along with, you know, Veterans for Peace is one of them. Um, we are going to make a huge noise and we need to build a huge awareness and educate people and get people to really bring huge pressure to bear on our nation so that we can lead the way because it's not just the nine nuclear armed nations, but there are other countries that are under our nuclear umbrella. Um, Canada, uh, I believe is still uh, has not signed and ratified. There are countries under the nuclear umbrella or that are part of NATO uh, who have still not come forward. So there is a lot of work to be done, but this is a huge beginning because as you say, the world the nations have come together and have recognized that these weapons have no place on this planet um, and that we have other priorities in terms of human survival. So let's get started. So uh, I look forward to what we're going to be doing here in the year to come uh, to bring that pressure to bear. We have about five minutes left just to let everyone know. Go ahead, Mike. Great. Well, I just wanted to mention, sir, reiterate some points points and that is ground zero ground zero is here in the seattle metropolitan area western washington actually uh, bangor and that's washington state all politics are local as the old uh, house of representative tip o'neill said and that's us <laughs> and we can bring begin that right here and, you know we have to we have to force our legislators into a, some sort of a sanity and rejecting nuclear weapons and and However, we do that with the protest uh, op-ed articles. Uh, there's very various sort of ways, but we have to do it 
it's an established way to do change the uh, opinions of these uh, of these people who are wishy-washy about nuclear weapons. Uh, and that's up to us, really, you know. The time is now, as you said, you know, we're going to have a big thing here in January about the formal signing of the 50-member 50, 50 threshold, which supports this treaty. Um, so it's up to us, really. There's no other way, to, way around it. Correct. Correct. Actually, I'll finish a short time here by um, saying, yes, you're right on target. And our job, anyone who's listening here, members of VFP or anyone else, is to engage with an organization you're already a part of, for instance, VFP. Wow. Uh, VFP does, you know, amazing work on nuclear weapons. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, there's Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action. What I appreciate is that we have a coalition, and you mentioned it, Mike, uh, Washington Against Nuclear Weapons. And um, uh, there's a website for that. And what's great about that, you know, Ground Zero, we focus on Trident specifically. And, you know, we have to. That's our task. It's To me, uh, this is, it is the, 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 the greatest threat to humankind in terms of nuclear weapons that exists. Uh, Trident uh, has enough firepower. If every Trident submarine fired off its salvo of nuclear weapons, um, that would be it. That would be a global winner of untold proportions. And that's not even counting the Russian nuclear weapons. So we need to be involved. So the coalition here in Washington State is composed of all these different groups. Um, there's a group up there in the, um, uh, here in Skagit County. There are these little small groups everywhere, small local groups in Seattle. So they're, they're plenty of organizations that are part of that coalition. Uh, and um, Washington Against Nuclear Weapons has done some really good advocacy uh, with Congress, um, um, with our governor, et cetera. So I think that's a great focal point. But again, there are organizations with whom many of us are already involved or may want to get involved with that are doing this work. And um, I'll just say the Ground Zero Center moving into the new year will be doing a number of things about the treaty, including advertising or public service announcements um, in both December and January, uh, hopefully more billboards in January on the treaty. Um, we may be, if we can get it together, work on a Salish Sea nuclear weapons free zone and, uh, and hopefully really regenerate interest in a program to stop production of the new Trident submarine. So there is a lot of work to do and we're all in it together. Great. Uh, thank you, Leonard. Uh, Leonard Iger. And uh, again, this is a broadcast from Veterans for Peace, Chapter 92 on KODX 96.9. These, these uh, audio files will be available on our VFP92.org uh, website, but also on the radio station. Go there. You can listen to all of them. This is our, I think, our 11th show. Uh, and we'll continue. Thank you, uh, Leonard, for coming on and showing your, uh, telling us your information. Very, 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 very much appreciated. Thanks again. Thanks to you both. Yeah. Great to be on. Thank you, Leonard, so much. And um, maybe sometime next year, as uh, we go through this struggle to um, ban nuclear weapons, we can have you back on to update uh, everyone about what's going on. I will look forward to that, and I will look forward to having made progress. Thanks That's to right. you and thanks to Veterans for Peace and thanks to the Golden Rule. <laughs> All right. Thank you. That's the end of the show. But before we go, 
let me give credit where credit is due. Our theme music, Untouchable, and the transition music, Spanish Winter, are from The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find this music at thepassionhi-fi.com. That's the P-A-S-S-I-O-N Hi-Fi, H-I-F-I.com. Thank you again to Leonard Iger of Ground Zero for participating in the show. You can learn more about Ground Zero, the organization that he's with, at their website, gzcenter.org. That's Ground Zero, G-Z as in Ground Zero, gzcenter.org. And happy Thanksgiving to everyone again. Please take care of yourself. Try not to gather. Think about next year and the wonderful time we're all going to have when we get this virus under control. We can hug each other, hold hands, kiss each other, etc. Try to keep everybody in your family safe. Tune in next time. The radio show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 FM Seattle. That's 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific Time. Or listen to a live stream at kodxseattle.org. You can listen to our past episodes at kodxseattle.org slash seattlevfp. So until then, stay in the struggle, power to the people, and power to the peaceful.